0: Today's episode is sponsored by the Meriwether Council's Etsy training course, a video training series that teaches Etsy sellers the exact steps to a more visible, profitable, and enjoyable Etsy experience. For more information, visit meriwethercouncil.com. And now here's the show. Welcome to episode 76 of the Walshie Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today we're talking about illustration and self publishing with my guest, Janine Morrison. Janine Morrison is a surface and textile designer, a painter, and the artist and publisher behind a popular series of self published coloring books for adults, first published in 2012. Her coloring books have been published by traditional publishers in Japan, Italy, France, Brazil, and Turkey, and there are currently more than a million of her books in print on newsstands across North America. Janine's books have reached the Amazon bestseller lists in both Italy and the United States. Her artwork has been licensed for use on rugs, fabrics, including free spirit fabrics, stationery and scrapbook kits, and her paintings are currently on display in three Las Vegas hotels. Earlier this year, Janine was one of 16 artists hand-selected to participate in Adobe's Make It on Mobile Summit, a two-day hands-on immersive exploration of creativity on mobile devices held at the Cooper Hewitt Museum in New York. Janine's bright and colorful studio is located in the Cooper Young Historic District in Memphis, Tennessee. Janine Morrison, welcome. Welcome.
1: Thank you so much. I'm
0: so happy to be here. I want to start um, in kind of an unusual place. So back in 2002, I think, you were a contestant on a game show. (laughs) I I was. (laughs) Okay. And uh, the show is called The Weakest Link, which actually used to be a British show. I saw it in England way back, I don't know, maybe in the early 2000s. And then there was like an American version for a while. So you were a contestant and you won.
1: I did. Yes.
0: Oh my goodness. So, I I stumbled upon this video last night on YouTube while I was <laughs> doing some research about you for this podcast and it was totally amazing, especially because the contestant that you won against got out on a question about tweed.
1: Yeah, I know. I know. I think that's so funny. It was
0: it was, was hilarious. <laughs>
1: Um yeah it was a great experience. It was really fun and I um I I got uh asked to do it. I went to audition here in Memphis and then I um you know went to the show and I actually from the time I got accepted it was 3 weeks until the time we recorded the show and I just studied every bit of trivia and um, you know, facts and everything that I could. So I really studied hard to win that. <laughs> oh
0: my goodness. It's so cool. So, okay. So you won $8,750. I did. Yes. <laughs> and you split the winnings in half. And this is another thing I thought was so interesting. So tell us what you did with the two halves of the, the winnings.
1: Well, um, you know, I I probably at the time thought I should have paid off debt or something like that, credit cards, um, student loans. But I um, instead, I took half of the money and I bought my first iMac and then I took the other and also some accessories to go with that. And then I took the other half and I bought um, one of those trivia machines that you used to see sitting on bars. Um, I don't know if they're there as much now because people have their iPhones to play games on, but in 2000. Two, um, I was working downtown on Beale Street in a restaurant, and I took half the money and I um, invested in one of these um, trivia machines. It had trivia and all kinds of different um, games on there. And um, people would just sit at the bar and feed that machine quarters. Uh, day and night just from the whole time that we were open and I split the money with my boss who owned the restaurant and let me put the machine in there we split it but it was really cool It was my first experience with passive income Um, the income that I started getting from the machine and eventually I got a couple more machines allowed me to work less and um, it was just a great a great first sort of entrepreneurial thing to do.
0: Yeah, I know. And it's so funny that you said that that was your first experience with passive income because that was the first thing I thought. I was like, you know what? That's the ticket, right? And so really, a lot of what we're going to talk about today is about passive income in a lot of different ways. And so I thought that was a great place to start. And um, uh, so, okay, so I want to kind of back up a little bit. Um, You grew up, I think, in Memphis as well or or maybe just outside? Oklahoma. Oh, you grew up in Oklahoma. Okay. Um, and your mom uh, was an artist as well. And it sounds as though like she was um, really talented, like really skillful at drawing, especially. And I just wondered what that was like for you kind of coming up um, with your mom being so good at, at drafting and at, at drawing um, and sort of how you felt as an artist yourself.
1: Well, I felt inferior. Um, you know, I was inspired. To see what she was doing, I thought it was amazing. But I, I just felt like, like I didn't, like I would never be that, that good. Um, even today, she's so good. She will just look at something and sketch it like, like nobody's business. And um, I'm, I'm so impressed with all the stuff that she does. So I, you know, growing up, I was really impressed and inspired. But, but also, like I, I. I think it gave me a very um, close-minded view of what art could be. I um, I didn't consider my doodles and things like that, like, worthy almost at the time. Yeah, I grew up in the... Um, uh, seventies and eighties in Oklahoma. And, um, there wasn't a lot of, I guess it was a small town. There wasn't, we didn't have art programs or anything like that. Um, I made a lot of art, but there was a lot of encouragement. I think at that time, no one was really thinking that, you know, especially in a small town in Oklahoma, you just weren't encouraged to go be an artist to make your living.
0: So after, um, after, you know, you sort of were growing up and you, you're kind of thinking may, maybe art wasn't really a career. Maybe it was just something that you could do and maybe you couldn't do it as well as your mom. So maybe that was also a sign it wasn't a career, you know, sort of some some insecurity there. So um, so then you went to college and you went to the University of Memphis. What did you study? Um, communications. Okay. So you didn't, you know, didn't have an undergraduate major in art. You studied although you know communications comes in handy later but um but yeah so so and then you graduated what did you um what did you think you might do you know if as as a job you know sticking around in memphis
1: yeah, um, I didn't. I didn't even know. I didn't um, like pick a major with an idea of a job. I sort of picked a major with something that I was interested in. In the communications field, there were um, all of these classes about radio and television programming, and I was interested in that. And so that was sort of why I did that. I waited tables throughout college, and then when I graduated, I just kept waiting tables. Um, I didn't. Even look for a job. I was just kind of set and content, and did like a lot of people do when you are waiting tables and you are sort of making good money. I, um, I didn't. I never looked for like a a real job.
0: Right. Okay. So you were doing that. Um, you were you went on this game show, and then um, and then you started making a little bit of passive income, and then actually through the restaurant, you kind of found art again.
1: I did. I did. So I had waited tables and bartended for years and I really got tired of it. Um, I got, you know, I was getting irritable. It was just, it was a rough life. The, the, place That I worked in stayed open until five in the morning. So it was really long nights, um, you know, serving alcohol and, and coming home at six or seven in the morning after the restaurant closed. And I um, eventually got moved up into the office. So I started counting the money and, and doing the bookkeeping and things like that, which I really like. It was kind of like a big puzzle every morning trying to figure everything out. But um, they started letting me design the menus. The owner had a few different restaurants and he let me design the menus and the flyers when bands would come. And I thought, this is this is awesome. Like I could do this, you know full time and um, we had there was something that we had to have done i can 't remember what it was now, but we had to hire an outside graphic designer to do the work and I one of my duties was paying the bills and I saw where we paid this outside graphic designer twenty five dollars an hour for four hours of work to do and that 's not even that much, but when I was making like eight dollars an hour, I was just like wow, like, you know, this person has skills that are allowing them to to earn $25 an hour. That's a really big deal. So at that point, I went back to um, Memphis College of Art for about a year and a half to learn some sort of basic skills.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I do think I, I always tell people who are just graduating from college, like, it might be a good idea to not go if you are planning to go to graduate school or to do some post you know post college studying of some sort. It might be a good idea to not go straight away like to wait and work a little bit even if you're not exactly sure you know what whether you're working in the field you eventually want to be working in because during those years you learn the value, like how hard it is to earn a dollar and you learn about yourself and what you want to do. And I always feel so thankful for the years that I was in Teach for America in between college and graduate school, because by the time I came to graduate school, I knew exactly what I wanted to learn.
1: Oh, that's so awesome. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think that that's important. So it sounds like for you, that was definitely the case. Like you knew exactly what you needed to be able to do what you wanted to do. So, yes. yeah, so that's cool. And um, and then you, in 2005, you um, went to Surtex, uh, which is the trade show for, for, I guess, for like the surface design industry. Is that, is, am I describing yes. that right? Okay, so you went to Surtex for the first time. And I wonder, you know, what that experience was like. Did you feel like that was kind of a launching point for the next step?
1: I I did, yeah, definitely. It was really scary in 2005. Um, There wasn't, like, you couldn't hardly find pictures of Surtex booths online. I remember, like, hanging up my artwork in the booth when I was there and still sort of thinking, I hope I'm in the right place. Like, I hope this is right. I just, um, you know, there just wasn't as much information about surface design and art licensing um, back in 2005 as there was, as there is now. But, um, video was a really great experience. It was the first time that I had showed my artwork, um, you know, anywhere other than I was selling, I made some little notebooks and was selling them in a local bookstore. Um, so the first time I'd showed my artwork like that, shown my artwork like that. And, um, I got a lot of great feedback and, um, I ended up, I showed it, both the Surtex and the licensing show that year and ended up signing with, um, a licensing agent after the second show.
0: Okay, and so you had this agent, and then through—is uh, it a woman? You're, was that yes. okay? So through her, um, you were. Was was that like what allowed you to get some some of your first clients?
1: Absolutely, yes. So the thing about me, when I went to Certex the first time, I had never walked the show. Um, I had done as much research as I could online. I would bought all the books that I could about our licensing. But after the shows, when I was sitting there with a stack full of business cards and notes about what these people wanted, I didn't even really know the, the first thing about how to... Uh, contact them, how to build those relationships. I knew nothing about contracts or negotiations or anything like that. So when I got um, an agent, it was like, um, you know, like I, I, I really at that point, like looked to someone else to help me with those things. Yeah. And so she knew all of it. She had been in licensing for like 20 years. It was a different type of licensing. Um, she was mainly licensing um, characters and um, things like Holly Hobby, um, Star Wars characters, things like that. So it wasn't art licensing, but um, she knew enough about the business side of things that she was able to take care of that. I could just make the art. And then um, it was through her that I did get like the scrapbooking deals. Um, I, we got free spirit while I was with her and um, Um, Several other things, rugs and, and some different stuff like that.
0: Right. Okay. And so you were putting together, um, did you have to put together a portfolio for her to then shop around um, and kind of show the range of artwork that you were able to offer?
1: Uh, we did do that. She also was big on just targeted presentations. So the way we worked a lot of times was that she would, um, you know, call me or email me and say, "I found a company. You know, I really like what they do. Go online, check out their offerings, and then you know, put together a presentation for them." So I would gather the artwork and we sort of we worked really closely side by side and we would sort of go through the artwork together to help put a presentation together. And um, some of those were digital. Sometimes we did like kind of some really cool mailing type things um, to sort of get the attention of the art directors. Um, But that was how we worked. I see. And do you still work with her now? No, I don't. We um, parted ways in 2009.
0: But it sounds like for many years, that was a really good um, relationship. I mean, almost for you, it sounds like it was um, like on the job training. Like she showed you how to put these things together, how to make a presentation, how to understand the contract, like what the rights were going to look like and um, kind of got you in front of people. And I, I imagine that you probably took some of those experiences and skills- Um, forward with you even after, you know, 2009.
1: Absolutely. I always think of it like as my art licensing boot camp. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, we worked hard and, um, you know, and fast. And I learned um, so much of, of everything that I know today from working with her. Right.
0: Okay. So, I mean, I think that's kind of important to hear because sometimes people feel like, oh, I don't need an agent. You know, I can kind of do this my on my own. And that may be true. Or, you know, like I don't want to um, to pay the agent, you know, out of the earnings that I get from the new contracts and that kind of thing, which I c- that can also be true. Um, but at the same time, sometimes those tr- more traditional relationships um,
1: are really good teachers for you professionally. Definitely. It was a, it was a, a huge help for me. Um, I didn't, I didn't know. There's so much I didn't know. You don't even know how much you don't know until you're kind of in the middle of this and learning. So it was, it was great for me. Yeah.
0: Okay. Good. So I I think that's important to hear. So, um, so I want to talk a little bit about your work itself before we kind of go forward into, and kind of into more current work that you're doing now. Um, so tell us a little bit about sort of your process. I know you love to paint. Um, and you are also very adept at making repeat patterns on the computer. So kind of how does a new design for a client or even for a coloring book, like how does how does that take place?
1: So I make art every single day. I wake up. It's like the first thing I want to do. Um, my emails kind of get pushed to the side um, and other like, like business things. I just, I like to make art. I, I love it. I get so excited. I'm, I'm just... Like it's the greatest thing in the world that I get to wake up every day and and make art. Um, yeah, I can almost cry telling you that because it's it's just so awesome. So so every day I wake up, I start making art, and then I just like. Um, you know, I, So I have a collection. So I do a lot of drawing, a lot of doodles. Um, I do a lot of things on my iPad now, and I um, send those to Illustrator. And so I have a collection of a lot of little icons and little doodles and textures and things. And then when I sit down to do a different project, I sort of go through all of the art that I've been making each day. So um, like when I made my first uh, coloring book, I went through all of the art that I had in my portfolio up until the time that I made the coloring book, sort of looked back to see like what would be appropriate for that. Um, and it's the same thing if I'm, if I'm getting ideas together for a fabric collection, I sort of look at what I've done for the last six months um, and then, you know, kind of pick and choose and play and um, put something together. So I'm always creating.
0: Right, and I think that's neat that you are collecting too. It's like you're creating, um, not necessarily with, um, you know, when you're doing kind of the, the drawings, the icons, the, the doodling and that kind of thing, not necessarily with an end project uh, in mind, although maybe sometimes, but just to have that almost like a dictionary of visual options that are then there waiting for you to pull on uh, and expand upon and, you know, use uh, for whatever the next project might be
1: yes yes
0: yeah that's a great tip um okay so you um so so do any of those beginning drawings and things take place like with acrylic paint on canvas are you using like a micron pen on paper or just a combination of different things
1: so I do paint and I've sort of I've kept that a little separate than sort of the designs that I do like for my fabrics and things like that um I also, um, I used to do, up until just a couple of years ago when I started using the iPad, I would draw on paper with the Micron pens and then I would scan those in and clean them up. Um, That's how, just to to have sort of the hand-drawn look so that everything doesn't look digital in my artwork. Um, Since I got an iPad and started working on that, I just pretty much draw on the iPad and then I can send things directly to Illustrator and they are in vector form already. They're very clean and smooth, and I don't I don't have to do as much work to make them look as nice.
0: Okay, and so you like Adobe Sketch and Adobe Draw on the iPad Pro, um, yep. and you use the Apple Pencil. Um, so just tell people who maybe have never experimented. With some of these mobile apps um, for drawing, what is so appealing to you about them that they've sound, it sounds like they've almost like essentially replaced kind of traditional art materials for you?
1: Well, yeah, they have. So I, um, you know, I did a lot of artwork just that the started in Illustrator. And that was the primary thing that I did, you know, um, when I started through 2010, um it had it had a very illustratorish look. When I started, that was what art directors wanted. Everyone was like, wow, this clean, crisp, perfect, you know, artwork. You know, everyone like really, really liked it. But over the years people got tired of sort of the clinical look of Adobe Illustrator and really liked, they wanted to see the hand of the artist. Um, So I had all of these skills in Illustrator, but I knew that I really needed to bring just a my own hand into it. So things didn't look just computer generated. So that was when I um, got my first iPad, I guess. I didn't get it until the end of 2013, but I immediately started playing in um, Adobe Ideas, which is now Adobe Draw. And that is a program where you can draw um, you know, with your pen or your stylus or whatever, and then you send that artwork directly to Illustrator, and it is in vector form. So then I can, you know, play around with it. I do a lot of little doodles, I do textures and things, and it's all kind of ready for me to go in the computer. There are so many different options, so many different things that you can do. That like with Adobe Capture is another one too that allows you to like capture shapes out in the world and use those in your artwork but I really like to use these. It kind of opened up a whole new section of my brain to different possibilities with art. And it all started with the tools. Like when I go to play in Adobe Sketch, I rarely have anything in mind. I just let the tools sort of inform the artwork and something amazing always happens.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. That's neat. Yeah. And sometimes I feel like when you do get a new tool, um, it opens up an idea, like a, a, a whole set of capabilities for you that then um, allow you to make new things, you know. And before you had that tool, that just wasn't even an option. So sometimes yeah. getting the new tool is the key to the next step.
1: Yes, absolutely. It's like your you your brain doesn't even know that these things are possible. So you know the tool, and just started playing with it, and it's you know and I said I like to make art every day. A lot of it is just you know opening up my iPad and sort of playing around. What can I do? Like what different things can I do on here? So um, yeah, that's been a that has really changed the look of my work. Yeah.
0: I want to pause things for a moment to talk about our sponsor. Today's episode is sponsored by the Meriwether Council's Etsy training course, designed specifically to address the common mistakes and concerns associated with selling on Etsy. This course will guide you through each section of your shop and explain how to best optimize it. This course is made up of 22 on-screen video trainings that are succinct, effective, and easy to follow. If you ever wished you could sit down with someone who has been successful on Etsy and have them tell you exactly what they've done and how you can do it too, then this course is for you. It feels like sitting down with a friend who will teach you everything she knows, but you'll be able to replay it or reread it as many times as you need. You'll gain priceless insights regarding buyer behavior, visual branding, navigation, and SEO, all specific to Etsy. Learn the exact things you need to do in your shop to get more traffic, exposure, and sales. Plus, learn the common mistakes Etsy sellers make, how to avoid them, and what to do instead. This course includes technical how-tos, mini shop critiques, and lessons that will guide you through how to make the most of key areas in your own Etsy shop. Etsy is the most powerful tool available to handmade sellers, and you'll learn exactly how to optimize your presence there and set your shop up for increased visibility, opportunities, and sales. Your shop can work hard for you every day to inform and capture your audience and keep them looking longer. Meriwether Council's Etsy training course will show you how to make it happen. For more information or to enroll, visit meriwethercouncil.com. And now back to my conversation with Janine. So let's talk a little bit about these coloring books, because my goodness, this has been quite something that has happened to you or that you created, let's say. So in 2012, um, you found like an old coloring book or came across like an old 1970s coloring
1: book. What was that book? It was, um, Ruth Heller was the designer, and I can't remember the name, but it was a Dover coloring book. Okay, so it was
0: like a designy kind of coloring book?
1: Yes, it was design-based, and I remember loving it as a kid. Like, I was not into the princesses and the cows or the farm scenes or anything like that. I really loved the design-based coloring books. Um, there, it was just, it was so unique, and there were no rules. I could put the colors wherever I wanted to put them um as opposed to you know if you're coloring a scene you might have to make the grass green and the sky blue and what fun was that right uh, so with the design based coloring books um there were also back in the 70s these um doodle art posters that i used to get and color um so I, I have great memories of that from when i was a child
0: okay right so so you found this refound this again and you know stumbled upon it and and thought okay i can do this and so you spent three weeks kind of going through your artwork library of things that you, you know, had made and created and and put together this coloring book. And did you even know that it was going to be an adult coloring book or did you just sort of think of it as a coloring book?
1: I thought of it as a coloring book. Um, I didn't think of it as a coloring book for kids because I included a lot of intricate spaces, but I also didn't, think to call, like I didn't call it an adult coloring book. It was just a coloring book but I always mentioned in my marketing that it was geared toward older kids. Um, you know, and adults because the spaces were a little more intricate than they would be in like a child's coloring book.
0: Okay, right. So um, this was not. I mean, this this was before the craze, right? Like this was before yeah. the coloring book craze, which is kind of amazing. So, so you had this. You spent three weeks. You put it together, and then you put it up on Amazon's Create Space, which is Amazon's print-on-demand service. So you kind of create the file, you upload it. Amazon has it, and then when someone places an order, Amazon prints the order, and Amazon fills the order. So again we're back to this idea of passive income. You're not having thousands of books printed and shipped to you and you're storing them in your garage. That's not how this is working. This is self-publishing that's print on demand and fulfilled by Amazon. So why did you choose to do that versus say you know, you had, had, had an agent, you kind of knew a lot about pitching. It uh, sounds like you'd, you know, become pretty good at pitching. So why not just take the idea and, and try to pitch it to, you know, to one of the companies or to a publish a traditional publisher?
1: Well, so there were a couple of reasons. One, you know, when you have an idea and you're just like so excited, you, you can't even stand it. <laughs> um, I was so excited about this idea that I wanted it to happen like then, you know, I was just I was really excited. I was like, I can do this. I, I have the skills to do this. I can put together a really big book. I didn't want to, you know, I mean, I, I've had so much experience with Um, You know, once I was no longer with my agent, I continued to approach licensing partners. And um, so much of it is um, there's a lot of rejection and there is a lot of non-response. So when I thought about, you know, pitching the book at the time, I thought about Dover because they were one of the only companies that I knew um, that was doing coloring books at the time. And I, I didn't really know who else to pitch to, um, but when I thought about it, I thought I don't want to like send out a pitch and just like wait and wait and wait and see if someone gets back to me. I want to make this coloring book and and have it available. And when I learned about CreateSpace and learned that I could actually do it with um, no investment uh, other than my time and um, the shipping costs for my first proof. Um, which I chose rush shipping because I was so excited, <laughs> about it. so it cost me a little more than it would, but it was like an eighteen dollar um you know eighteen dollar investment, I think um for the copies of the book cost two dollars and fifteen cents, and then plus the rush shipping, so I was able to get it, and um I was just you know really excited about it. I got to set my own price um, I loved this idea of Amazon taking care of all the orders and shipping them. I didn't have to to order, you know, a thousand coloring books and have them sitting in my studio, um, you know, hoping to sell them. So there were, when I learned about CreateSpace, I just thought this is, this is perfect.
0: (laughs) Right. Okay. So, um, so you got your proof and your, you know, you played for the rest shipping, very excited. (laughs) Um, and, and you have this, you know, $18 investment or whatever, very, very inexpensive, under a hundred dollars altogether to get the whole thing up and running maybe under 50. Um, okay. So, and then you put the, the, um, the book up and, um, was that the first one, was that the flower designs or was that a different one? The first the one? The first one was um a pattern
1: and design coloring book.
0: Okay. So it was a pattern okay, great. And um and then what happened? I mean, was it one of these things where you put it up and then, you know, oh my gosh, like I can't believe, you know, how many have sold? Or was it kinda like, yeah, a couple sold and it took more, you know, it took a while to take off? Like what what was the initial reaction?
1: Well it um, I need to I should go back and check precisely but if if memory serves i I definitely sold a few right away. Um, you know, I priced the book at $12, which gave me a royalty of $5 and five cents per book. And I remember that first month getting really excited. Um, just thinking, wow, you know, if I could, I can't remember exactly how many I sold. Um, but I remember thinking, wow, if I could do this every month, that's like good extra income. And I think the first month was, um, just because the, um, the newness of it and the excitement and I had shared it with my um, followers on Instagram and Facebook and stuff. I think my first month was actually better than the second month. I think there was a slight dip in the second month but then the sales just grew and grew and grew. And so they grew steadily.
0: Did it help um, cause I know you released more, um, many more titles. I think you ha- you have maybe, maybe seven or eight of them, uh, maybe more out now. And, um, you know, some of these took longer because you didn't have as much kind of, mm-hmm. you know, pre-made artwork to pull from. Um, so right. they, they might've been more than a three week, uh, investment of time, but, um, but did it help to have more than one title available as far as overall sales?
1: Um, definitely, yeah. For the so for the first three books that I did, my sales started doubling every time I released a new book. Um, you know, I, I released volume two, I think, um, about six months after I had released volume one and I started getting twice as much, you know, twice as many sales. And then I released a Mandala book. Um almost a year after I had released the first one. And again, like the sales just like doubled again. Um, Part of that was because we were getting a little closer to the time when, when the trend was going to happen, like there was more and more interest, but also it's easier for your books to be found on Amazon if you have more than one.
0: Mm -hmm. And I think that actually holds true on other marketplaces as well, at least I, I, I don't know, you know, how much experience you have on Etsy, if any, but I think on Etsy, in my experience, that's also true. Like if you have one item listed, you know, if, if, if you end up having three, you're going to sell more of that one uh, than if you just had yes. one. Yes. Um, I think it's something to do with uh, consumer confidence or um, search or both, but Mm-hmm.
1: And then the you know the the people who bought the first one maybe come back for the second or the third one. So it mm-hmm. was sort of like a place for repeat customers to go.
0: Right. Okay. So you're getting five dollars and five cents royalty yes. on this twelve dollar coloring book and. Um, I know you didn't try for a traditional publisher, but do you have any inkling of what that would have looked like? Like, let's say Dover had picked it up or whatever, and you had had a royalty agreement with them. What would that royalty um, percent or, you know, what would that royalty amount have looked like?
1: Um, You know, I don't know. I have a little bit of experience with um, traditional publishing now only because we've gone, we've done these deals with foreign publishers. Um, But it seems like, you know, maybe 50 cents to a dollar per book might be about right. I'm not sure on that. Right. Okay. So, and so I think even, and I, I don't, I'm no idea about Dover, but I had actually heard that they, I don't, I'm not sure that they even pay royalties. They may just pay a flat rate. Yeah, I think you're probably
0: right with Dover, but maybe with um, Chronicle or you know a different publisher that you would have a royalty agreement with, perhaps.
1: So the, um, That I can I can say about it is that um, that five dollars and five cents is a forty two percent royalty. So I'm you know the, the royalties I'm getting on my foreign books are six seven eight percent. Um, you know maybe up to ten percent if we sell a whole lot. So the royalty at CreateSpace is just much higher.
0: Right. Okay. And so and I hope you don't mind me saying this. I only am going to say it because I read it on Tech Insider. So I feel like it's been <laughs> out there on this gigantic website, and so it's not like private information. So I hope that's okay. But um, it says, it, so it said in this article that they wrote about you sort of celebrating your success and the, and the adult coloring book craze and, um, self-publishing that you had sold at that time, uh, which was, I think last year, 91,000 copies and made nearly half a million dollars on the coloring books. Yes. And that's amazing. I know. <laughs> <laughs> You're like the Amazon create space success. I mean, there's more than one, but you are on Amazon create space, major success story.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, it, it went so much further than I ever imagined. Yeah. Um,
0: okay. So you have these books there. I'm imagining – you said you mentioned that you shared them with your Instagram followers. And I know that you also did some um, press outreach. Um, just, you know, so I want to talk a little bit about marketing because one of the things that you supposedly get when you work with a traditional publisher – is their marketing prowess. Now, whether that's actually true in this day and age with print publishing is debatable, but when you do it on your own, for sure, you're doing the marketing on your own. So can you talk a little bit about the strategy you used or the efforts that you put into what was particularly effective and um, how it developed over time to get the word out about these coloring
1: books? So um, in the beginning, like I said, I marketed to Instagram and Facebook um, followers. Those were mainly people that I knew from the um, sewing and quilting world from being a fabric designer for Free Spirit. So um, I remember at the first... quilt market like i released my um book in august of 2012 i did a schoolhouse in october uh, at that quilt market and i gave away copies of my coloring book to everyone who attended the schoolhouse so that was sort of my first outreach to just try to get it in as many hands as possible um the good thing one good thing about working with create space is that you can order um Copies, they're two dollars and fifteen cents each and there's no minimum on those orders. So I don't, you know, have to order a thousand copies. I could just order fifty. But the fact that they're just two dollars for me um made it a really nice price point to be able to give away and you know, put in other people's hands.
0: And I just want to interrupt for one second, which is to say that if you have a schoolhouse, that means you have a booth, right? Because Quilt Market doesn't give you a schoolhouse, doesn't allow you to have a schoolhouse unless you have a booth. Is that so I, I think I'm, I'm right on that. So so that means that you also had a booth at market, you know, I, or did I, you have a booth because you had free spirit? Maybe that's why.
1: So in, I had booths in 2010 and 2011, um, but I think that the schoolhouse was just done through Free Spirit. Okay. Got it. Okay.
0: Because I was just going to say, like, if somebody were to do this and didn't have Free Spirit, didn't have a contract with a, an existing company that had a booth, you know, to do the schoolhouse, you would need to fund the booth. But it sounds like funding the booth and doing the schoolhouse and paying for the um, giveaway copies was really well worth, worth the money because it's a great sort of gift item for a quilt shop.
1: Definitely. Yeah, yeah. And it just, um, you know, it it suddenly, you know, all these people knew that I was doing a coloring book, because you can only, you know, reach so far um, with, you know, with certain ways of marketing. So this sort of brought it to a whole nice new group of people. And people were really excited about it, because at the time, you know, no one else was really doing coloring books. So I got a lot of great feedback on it. And um, I think, you know, got a lot of new uh, fans and followers because of that.
0: Okay, so that was one big push. Tell me yep. about some other pushes, whether uh, it was reaching out to to the media or or other things that you did to kind of get the word out
1: that I yeah. did actively reach out to the press on a regular basis. I researched writers on um, that article in Tech insider that you mentioned. I pitched the article um, to that writer i um you know I spent the two thousand fifteen just really reaching out and um, trying to connect with people and and develop those relationships with the press. Um, I would
0: love to hear just a little bit more about that, because I think that's something that a lot of people are afraid to do, um, to reach out to the press, you know, kind of feeling like maybe they should just be kind of plucked and and written about. But but you can actively reach out to the press and, and do well. And I mean, that Tech Insider article, I think, did really well. And I know I read it right when it came out. And it was shared a ton online. And I'm sure really helped with sales among many other articles that you, um, you know, if you go to like the press section of your website, you've got a long list there of, of coverage. And so can you just talk a little bit about like, what does that mean? Reach out to the press. Like, what did, what does that really look like?
1: So I, um, started, I just started researching people who had, um, who had written about coloring books. At all, and there was a, there a lot of articles in different um, papers and things. People who had written reporters and um, people at like BuzzFeed and other places um, who had written about coloring books. And I started, you know, offering to send them a book for review. Um, you know, I, I got mentioned twice in the LA Times because I wrote to this awesome uh, writer that I love, Carolyn Kellogg, and I sent a couple of uh, copies of my books to her, and she ended up mentioning them in two articles, which is just so amazing. Um, I, I, I researched people. I followed them on Twitter. I looked to see what they were, they were writing about, and then I just wrote a letter that said, you know, here's what I'm doing um, these are my books, and, um, you know, if you're interested in talking about them, I'm available. It was usually a very short note. Um, at the beginning of the year, my pitches were sort of long and drawn out toward the end of the year. They were very concise and just simple, and I think that that is why you know, the article on in Tech Insider came out in December. That was, you know, I had sort of perfected my pitch over the course of the year. But people aren't just going to find you if you do something great. Like, you, you have to tell them they're not, it's not just going to happen. You're not just going to sit there in your studio and you're doing this great thing or you're, you know, having success in self-publishing. No one's going to know that except for you and your family, unless you reach out to people and tell them. And I was really excited and proud of what I was doing with the books. It, it was, you know, something that I wanted to share and I was hoping it would encourage other people with self-publishing. So I, I reached out, you know, with that story and um, ended up getting like lots of good Good coverage.
0: Yeah. And one thing to keep in mind, two things come to mind. One is that um, people who work at these publications, especially internet-based publications that publish daily and sometimes many times in each day, um, they need stories. They really do. They need human interest stories. They need good stories. They need visual stories. And so um, they, you know, if you come to them with a good story, they're excited. Like they're happy to get it because okay. they need. They have deadlines. They need stories. So that's number one. Another thing is that you mentioned Twitter, and I think a lot of times um, people who are kind of in the in the visual field, kind of um, you know, love Instagram. People who are artists, crafters, fabric designers, quilters, et cetera. We love Instagram. We love blogs. We love, you know, that kind of visual sharing and sort of Twitter kind of, you know, doesn't really have a lot of that. And so people sort of feel like, ah, what do I need Twitter for? But what you said about developing relationships with reporters, um, with media outlets, following what they're doing, um, and seeing who they are and who the right person at that publication might be to cover you. For example, Twitter mm-hmm. is so good for that. Yeah, that that's, that's, is how I use Twitter all the time. I mean, that's what Twitter is great for. Yes. Um, you know, just like I follow, you know, I'm very interested in Etsy, for example, as a company. I follow like all kinds of people who work at Etsy. There's like hundreds of people who work there and they all are on Twitter. And so just seeing like what it's like, you know, for the people who run like the user experience experience you know, um, division at Etsy and like who they are and what they're working on and that kind of thing. That's what Twitter is for. So it's for kind of like the businessy side, the press side. Um, and it's not going to have all that visual stuff, but it is going to help you connect with the people who you
1: need for a certain area of your business. Yeah, and it lets them know that, like, you're you're paying attention, you're there. I mean, I remember when I wrote um, the reporter at the L.A. Times, like, she had just gotten this orange cat, and she was sharing about her cat on Twitter. So, you know, I made a comment at the end of my thing, you know, the orange cats are the best, which they are, um, and, uh, you know, just sort of letting her know that, that I'm I'm here and I'm paying attention, and I'm not just someone who pulled her name out of a directory and wrote to her that morning. Like, I've been following along with her journey and reading her stories. So I think that is really important. Right. Because they're doing creative work too, you know?
0: Um, And so, and they, and they want, they, you know, writers besides wanting stories want readers. Um, And so knowing you're a reader, you know, it means a lot.
1: You know, I just continued probably the thing that I think sells coloring books better than anything else is when people see a beautifully colored coloring book page. So I steadily colored the coloring book pages like I've been coloring now pretty steadily for the last four years. Uh, I would uh, color those and again, share those on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Um, People love to see that. Uh, When I first got my books or first published the books, Amazon allowed the authors to upload photos so i would upload a ton of photos of colored pages to the author to the book pages they don't allow you to do that now so um one of the things i do now when releasing a book is that i um you know ask if anyone would like a copy for a fair and honest review and i send it i send out books i think i did You know, probably on my most recent book, like twenty-five or thirty copies that I had sent out, and just asked people to do reviews, and then if they color any pages, um, you know, to include those in the review, because it just really makes a big difference. Um, And then the starting in two thousand, so so a lot of the books sold on Amazon when. When there weren't a lot of other books up there, there wasn't a lot of competition. People sort of organically found my books on Amazon. So a lot of it wasn't necessarily, you know, back in 2013 and 2014, me going to the press or doing anything like that, Um, they just, you know found the books on Amazon, which is kind of a weird thing to say. But popularity in coloring books was starting to grow at that point. You were seeing more and more publishers start to put some out between um, 2000, late 2013 and then 2014. So it was starting to become a thing. And my books were available on Amazon. Um, sorry.
0: Yeah, <laughs> no, that's totally true. So You know, part of this is that you were, you were there when the trend took off and that's just something that maybe people can't, you know, it's almost like, oh, I'm going to create a viral video. Well, you can't really do that. You know, you can create a great video and you can put it up and you can do your best to share it. But in the end, whether it goes viral or not, isn't really under your control necessarily. Um, Even if you've got all the elements that make something go viral, it may not Um, And so who knew that this was going to become a craze? You know, there was no way to know. But but because it did and because you
1: were there, you got to ride it. Yes. Yes. So that was a lot of it. Just getting in early and having my books there. So the main success that happened for me um, happened in 2015 with the books Um, Starting in about March, the coloring book trend started taking off, and it took everyone by surprise. It took me by surprise. It took traditional publishers by surprise. Um, Suddenly, everyone wanted coloring books, and um, Joanna Bassford's coloring book, Secret Garden, sold out on Amazon immediately, and I think it stayed sold out for months on Amazon. Um, Most of the other books that were printed by um, traditional publishers, they also sold out because they just didn't have that many in stock. So this really made a great like path or a lane for my book because it was printed on demand it was always available and it never went out of stock so when this trend happened and people wanted to color like they wanted to color right then like they ordered some of the books that were out of stock but at the same time they ordered my book I mean it was in stock it had hundreds of reviews at that point already so um that allowed it to um, climb. That is when it climbed to um, number sixteen on the Amazon charts and stayed there for in the top one hundred for about eight weeks. Right, it was really the fact that it was there. There was no way that it could sell out. Um, that those are the things that helped and that i mean it was a really good book It was my flower designs book it was the fourth book i had done it was my best book by far i felt like i really had found my groove for that one and um so that is really how things sort of opened up for that book
0: mm-hmm. okay that's good to hear um that's an interesting you know it's interesting to see like that the Print on demand piece of it actually was hugely in your favor because it could never sell out. So, um, so let's talk a little bit about reviews. Um, so anyone who's written a book, um, and, you know, had it for sale on Amazon knows about Amazon reviews um, and Amazon reviews are a huge feature of what brings people to Amazon to shop because they want to know what other people have thought of the product. I mean, I buy, I look at Amazon reviews before I buy almost anything online. <laughs> um, and so they're very important. And I wanted to hear a little bit about how you encourage people to leave your reviews if you did, and then how you sort of think about negative reviews, because there's always going to be negative reviews. That's just part of it.
1: Um. Yeah. So I encouraged people. I had a little note in the back of my book saying, if you like the book, you know, please leave a review on Amazon. I may have worded it a little more fairly than that. Like, you know, g- give me feedback on Amazon or something. Not just leave a review if you like it. But obviously, I like the. Positive reviews, better. So I always encouraged people um, to leave reviews, and and I always let people know how important it is um, to me as an author. It does make a difference. It, um, you know, I also could read reviews with. You know, even if there was something that people weren't crazy about, I could read the reviews and maybe learn from that. So I encouraged people to, you know, to leave me a review and let me know what they thought about the books. Um, The negative reviews, it's interesting. I... I think that, you know, my book, the Flower Designs book was on Amazon for a year with only four and five star reviews. And the minute it started like moving up the charts, um, maybe it just got in the hands of more people or, or maybe it was something else. But I didn't start getting any negative reviews until it started getting really popular. And those were very hard to take. I wasn't sure. Um they were just they were hard to take some of them were just mean i mean i'll never forget someone just saying they left a comment that said um you know this book is terrible it's really ugly um and i just thought ugly but but i knew it wasn't ugly you know it it's not an ugly book um but, but it, you know, those kind of hurt. And they affect sales. So Amazon shows, you know, in the right-hand column on the book page, you see the most recent reviews. And I could, I could see, like, a one-star and two-star review start to affect the sales. Um, when you're on Create Space, you can see your sales daily. So you see what is happening. You can basically see them hourly. Um, you know, you can see the sales as they're coming in. And I can sort of see my sales rank and things fall a little bit because of these bad reviews so it's it's hurtful and it's also you know damaging to the to the sales
0: yeah and it's hard to take i mean it's hard it's one thing i mean i know you had talked earlier about pitching and about rejections you know that a lot of the times and and i read in another interview that um that i read with uh with you that um, you said, like, for every company, and this is talking about pitching, you know, artwork to companies for surface design, for every company that says, yes, there are between 50 and 100 who say no. Um, and so I know that you had gone through that process in the past. You know, you had been rejected or or even if it wasn't a no, it was just silence, which is so hard to take, right? Like the silence of, like, I never heard back, you know? Um, and so it wasn't as though you are, you know, new to putting your work out there and having people not like it or not want it for whatever reason. But the Amazon reviews are a different animal because they just sit there, you know, like you can't take them down. They're just going to sit there and they do affect sales.
1: And they do and I will say I've developed a much thicker skin because of it um, you know the first few just like crushed me I was just like oh no like that's that's so hurtful and those are awful things to say about my coloring book um, but then you know I just kind of started to where it's like well that's one person's opinion I'm just going to take it with a grain of salt and then I'm sure that at some point you know someone else is going to come along and leave a glowing review right behind it so yeah
0: absolutely and And when I published my second book, um, stuffed animals, uh, I had this amazing editor and I got, I have like 80 something review, you know, with a five star average on that book. But but you know, there are a couple negative reviews and um, the first one that came in, I sent to my editor. I'm like, what do we do? You know, like, what do we do about this? <laughs> and he just sent me this little, um, like, uh, image back, like a little meme image of a panda and it just said, haters gonna hate. <laughs> like, what are you gonna, like, what are you gonna do? You know, he just had the best attitude and I was like, okay, here right. Like, you know, it is what it is. So yeah, yeah, you develop a thick skin and that's super important in life in general. So, um, okay. So that's cool. And now when you have, um, the books are published by traditional publishers overseas and are you working with an agent for those?
1: Yes, I am. So starting in 2014, I started getting um, inquiries from both France and, um, uh, uh, South Korean literary agents, and um, I didn't really know what to do with them at the time. But the inquiries that came in from France, they were with a company called Mirabeau, and um, they were uh, like very serious. They were very interested in and in the books. They actually liked um, four of the books that I had published, or those are all four that I had at that time. They were really, you know, searching for content. So. I, I sort of just stalled them. I didn't even, I didn't even know what to do. I thought this is kind of over my head a little bit. Um, but I ended up contacting Suzanne Woods because I knew she had um, coloring book, or she had book experience, and I had known her through Quilt Market. So she walked me through the first um, deal, the first deal that I had with the French publisher. And um, that was for four books. And she um, just very kindly helped me free of charge to, you know, go through all the paperwork. She looked over the contract. She helped me with my communication with them. It was just awesome. Um, But um, more and more, books started coming in, or requests started coming in, especially as soon as the books were published in France, I started getting a lot of interest from other European countries. And um, I didn't want to keep going to Suzanne and like asking her to do this for free. So I um, ended up reaching out to um, Kate McKean, and um, she's with Moreham Literary in uh, Brooklyn. And so she handles, she and her co-agent, her foreign co-agent, handle all the foreign rights now, which is
0: awesome yeah okay great I just I thought that was important and I I I think I knew that because I saw Kate uh a few months ago and I I think I had just booked you for the podcast which was a long time ago I booked these things very far in advance people will be surprised and um and I told her that you were coming on the show and she's like oh I'm managing her foreign rights now so I was like oh that's great because Kate's great so
1: yeah, she's been so great to work with. It's, again, it's like having that person there that can take care of things, um, that knows what they're talking about. She knows. She makes sure you know we haven't assigned rights to different places that we shouldn't have. And she's also like a really great. Um, she gives me a great insight to the, the publishing world.
0: Mm -hmm. Again, like a lot of sort of on the job training, you know, like you, I think that it's there, there's a lot of benefit. I mean, clearly a lot of benefit for you in doing this yourself, um, in publishing these books yourself. And, but you also had many years of experience kind of working in a more traditional way behind you. And then even when, you know, the foreign rights issues started to crop up, you again, worked with somebody who could work in a more traditional way. And so there's a lot to be learned from both, you know, both approaches. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and so, my 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 last question before I wanted to get to your recommendations because you've got some great ones. It's about kind of what you do next. I mean, I feel like sometimes when you have something that's wildly successful, um, I know in my own experience this is true. Like you know, you ride in this wave. It's amazing. It's incredibly exciting. The hard thing then, though, is to do the next thing, right? Because not everything you do is going to be so wildly successful. That's impossible, you know? And so you have to keep going, though, right? Like you have to – and it sounds like you're very driven internally just to make art and to enjoy that process. But as far as like, you know, thinking about profitability and thinking about products and all of that – has it been at all a struggle to keep going and, like, to move on and do sort of the next thing that might not be part of, like, a national publishing craze, you know?
1: Well, yes, definitely. It's um, – so, you know, it, it it's hard anytime. time, like – you know, I was with Free Spirit as a fabric designer for, I guess, about seven years. And my contract ended with them um, – in, I think, March of 2015. But the whole time that I was with them, I was thinking fabrics, like that's what I'm about. That's what I do. And that's who I am. And when that contract ended, it, you know, I was just like, who am I? (laughs) Um, And then that is right at the moment that the coloring books started taking off. And I was like, okay, well, you know, I I make coloring books, and this is this is awesome, and this is where you know I'm going, and this is sort of my focus for now. You know, it's been in, it's been in the back of my mind, like like you know, obviously I want to do more coloring books, um, but it is something that you don't know how long that that is going to be around, and the um, you know things on Amazon have changed dramatically in, um, you know, since I published mine in 2012. So my sales on Amazon aren't nearly as good, even as they were in 2014, before the craze hit. Um, just, uh, there's just been a lot of changes. There's a lot of, um, oh, the, there's a lot, a lot of things that are a little bit, bit frustrating that are happening over there. But, um, But so that has sort of, you know, that has changed. But I think that, you know, I think people love creative activities. Um, They like to be creative themselves. So now that I've experienced this success with self-publishing and being able to make that connection with all of these people who have my books, it has really inspired me to be thinking about, you know, what is the next place that that this that where will people want to focus their creative energies next? And can I sort of be on the forefront of that? So I, you know, have a lot of ideas. I brainstorm quite a bit. I share a lot of them with Kate, um, you know, to see if she's interested in pitching them um, because we, um, we actually did pitch a book to traditional publishers last year. Um, We got a great offer, but the timing was kind of bad. But so I just so I'm still thinking about publishing like that is something that I think after having this experience will always sort of be on my mind. And then the rest of it is, um, you know, I usually have I have deadlines, I have things going on. I just exhibited at Certex again this year for the for the first time and since 2005 um, and so I've been following up on leads with that. I have some, um, fun things happening at the, um, toward the end of the year, I'm going to go to, um, Adobe max, which is their Adobe's, um, conference that they have every year. It's in San Diego this year. And they are, um, for one thing, I'm getting to design the artwork on the, um, tote bags that they're going to give out to all of their 9,000 attendees, which oh, is Wow. Yeah. Uh, But they're also, for the first time at Adobe Max, having something called the Max Marketplace, where they're inviting artists to set up tables and sell their, um, you know, sell their wares to attendees. And um, so I'm going to participate in that. So that has really got me thinking about, you know, new product offerings and things that I might want to share when I'm at that show. So I'm still thinking about these things, but it it is something like when you said, you know, you wonder if if you can, you've had this, I've had this great success with the coloring books, like will there be, you know, a success like that in the future? It's It's definitely something that I think about, but I kind of think about it not in a, not in a necessarily a scared way of like, can I do that again? I think about it more like I did this, I did this, like, and it's encouraging, like, you know, like, like, I have the power to do it again. Right. Absolutely.
0: And especially because you did it in a way that wasn't dependent on someone else. It gives you that feeling like I did it all under my own energy and my own auspices and I can do it again. And I think that there's nothing that gives you more, you know, nothing's more motivating than that success. You know, there's no yes. other, there's no boost, but better than that boost. So Definitely. awesome. Okay. So I wanted to get to a few of your um, recommendations and um the first one that you wanted to recommend was Amy Fleury's recipe for press and pitch kits, which seems really apropos to what we were just talking about.
1: Yes, yes. Um, She's awesome. She does some um, videos and um, she has a couple of books that talk about reaching out to the press. Um, Right now in um, June and July is when a lot of the um, print magazines are um, looking for things for their um, holiday gift guides. So um, she always puts out, I think she just put one out a couple of weeks ago that has like all of the contacts in it for the different magazines. Um, I usually go pick up the magazines myself and like verify that they're there. But she shows you a really simple way to pitch, um, kind of tells you how to do a subject line what to include um, and how to approach these people because at the end of the year when these gift guides come out, like it's really important to be a part of that. Um, she also kind of gives you a guide of just reaching out to the press in general to share your story and stuff like that. So it's, it's really awesome.
0: Okay, super. <laughs> we, yeah, we will link to that in the show notes because um, I think that's a, a something that a lot of people need and, and want to do and, and have as a goal, especially, you know, as you said, in the summer trying to get into the holiday gift guide. So um, that's awesome and I actually have not um, followed her before so thank you for for the
1: recommendation on a personal level yeah it's I was just gonna say it's really important like you know you can if you can get in the right magazines or the right newspapers or the right online publications it can take your work so far beyond you know for someone like me I've got you know like um 9,000 followers on Instagram, but these things are going to, you know, homes and, and computers like all over the world. So it's, it's a huge, different, a big leap as far as like sharing your, your work.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. You always want to be thinking about those partnerships and, um, and, you know, sort of, trying to reach people who may not be sitting and, and scrolling through Instagram, which is, you know, a lot of people. (laughs) So yeah, absolutely. So, um, and then you wanted, I I know you're kind of a fan of online learning that you had taken, um, some classes on illustrator from, uh, on lynda.com and I'm a, I'm a fan of lynda.com. Also, I learned how to, um, edit my podcast by taking a class on lynda.com. Um, but you also recommend Skillshare as a place to do some online learning, to develop some new skills.
1: Yeah, I've um I I think I mentioned in my recommendations like I've I've taken a lot of um e courses, some that take a lot of time or maybe have multiple assignments in last weeks. With Skillshare, I can just jump right in and maybe learn a new skill in twenty minutes sometimes or you know learn a new graphic design technique or learn something about typography that I didn't know before. Um I think it's so great just to be able to to get that information and then immediately use it. Um, and there are, you know, it it covers everything from marketing to design, just, you know, anything that you would kind of want to know. And so many of the instructors are, um, just like world-class professionals at what they do, sharing their information. So I think it's awesome.
0: Yeah. And is there one that you would recommend, especially that you just loved and, and learned, um, you know, a really usable skill from?
1: Well, I just um, I was asked to do a poster for a local festival here in Memphis and I've never designed posters before so I um, you know went on to Skillshare and I took this just really cool class from Ellen Lupton, um, who is a curator for the Cooper Hewitt, uh, who I'd actually met um, when we were there for that um, thing that you mentioned in the intro. but um, it was poster design it sort of walked through poster design from from beginning until now. And, uh, you know, you can, you can look at things or you can pick up a book or something, but sometimes just having someone like kind of explain, this is why it works, this is why something might not work if it were done in this way is, is so helpful. So that's one of the most recent ones that I've taken, um, and just loved it.
0: Absolutely. That's awesome. And I took a class on MailChimp taught by MailChimp. I was okay. on Skillshare and it was terrific for me. So, um, so I, I recommend it for all different kinds of things. That's, that's super. Okay. And you have one more, which I would be totally remiss if we didn't get to because it's about naps and <laughs> the name of my blog and my show is based on napping. So, um, and, and you, uh, you were saying that, you know, you for a long time felt like you could not take a nap during the workday because like how lazy is that? But now you've sort of embraced it and love it. And I feel the same way. (laughs)
1: um yeah i even i was having a conversation the other day and i said something about you know i just woke up from a nap and it was with like a you know a professional and i was like i can't believe i just said that (laughs) um but i but yeah i started taking them like every day um i used to like grab a diet coke or try to take a walk around the block or do some jumping jacks to sort of fight that afternoon sluggishness and now it's like no like i i I'm going to take a little nap. It doesn't mean anything. It usually lasts 15 or 20 minutes. And um, after taking it, I am so refreshed. It feels like I've slept an entire night. It's Absolutely. Amazing.
0: And I feel like, why is this so shameful in the workplace? Like, <laughs> I mean, I used to work, you know, in a, in a, at a nonprofit and I had a traditional nine to five hours in, in an office cubicle. And it's like, you're allowed to take a 10 to 15 minute break, right? Like you're allowed to go, as you said, walk around the block, go to Diet Coke, go talk with a colleague, but God forbid you should like go unconscious <laughs> for 15 minutes. But you know what? Doing that is way more effective than any of those other strategies.
1: Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Okay. I, I swear by them now. I agree.
0: <laughs> they, I, I mean, okay, people, this is we gotta get cots and workplaces it's really good. I really, it is. So um, well, Janine, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Walshie Naps podcast. I so enjoy talking with you.
1: Thank you. I loved it so
0: much. Oh, good. So um if people want to catch up with you online, is the best place um on Instagram if they wanna kinda like send you a message. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. And it's just Janine Morrison. Yes. Okay, cool. So um I will link to that as well. And Um, You've been listening to the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Visit my blog, walshynaps.com, where you can sign up for my email newsletter to get the best in sewing and blogging and small business delivered right to your inbox each week. And thank you to today's sponsor, the Meriwether Council. Today's episode is sponsored by the Meriwether Council's Etsy training course, a video training series that teaches Etsy sellers the exact steps to a more visible, profitable, and enjoyable Etsy experience. For more information, visit com. And if you enjoy the show, tell a friend about it. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.